We're not expecting any Fed cuts in 2023. We think that's overly optimistic. So we do think that the interest rates are going to have to stay higher for longer to tame that inflation. Kind of what we've been talking about internally is, you know, we are seeing inflation start to decline, but we think it's a lot easier to get from kind of eight, nine percent inflation to four percent than it is to get from four percent to two percent. Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, and I'm Managing Editor Heather Bell. I'm joined by my longtime colleague, Senior ETF Analyst, Samit Roy. Hey, Samit. Hey, Heather. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Looking forward to today's episode. Today, we're speaking with Christy Akulian, a Senior Strategist with BlackRock's iShares Investment Strategy Team. Hi, Christy. Hi. Thanks for having me today. Samit, you want to kick us off with the questions? Yeah, sure. Christy, great to have you on the show. I recently got a chance to look through a report you wrote and super interesting stuff. I noticed that you wrote about how the regime of lower rates for longer has transitioned to a new regime of higher rates for longer. Can you tell us why you believe this shift has happened and how long this new regime might last? Yeah, that's a great place to start. I also think that it's kind of it's one of the areas that maybe differentiates us a little bit from the consensus as well. Um, so, you know, great place to dig in. You know, this this idea of, of not just a new stage in the business cycle, but really a regime change started to crystallize for us at BlackRock um, in, in about the summer of this year. So we've written about it a little bit before. Um, but I think that it's come into much sharper focus in the last couple of months. So, so really what we think about, and, and this is kind of combining a few of the themes within the report that we just wrote, the iShares 2023 implementation guide, is our view of inflation is that it's going to stay higher for longer than the market currently appreciates. So there's some structural reasons behind that, which I think we'll probably get into a little bit later. But to your specific point around interest rates, we just don't think that the Fed is going to have the luxury of being able to pivot as quickly as market pricing would currently imply. So that inflation staying structurally a little bit higher um, than the Fed target, it, it really just means that you know we're expecting a pause more so than a pivot. So here is where I think we differ quite a bit from the street and from you know just, just taking a look at, at some of the screens in front of me here and, and where market implied pricing is. We're not expecting any Fed cuts in 2023. We think that's overly optimistic. So we do think that, that interest rates are going to have to stay higher for longer to tame that inflation. Kind of what we've been talking about internally is, you know, we are seeing inflation start to decline, but we think it's a lot easier to get from kind of eight, nine percent inflation to four percent than it is to get from four percent to two percent. Um, so, you know, in this you know particular environment, even though we do think that we're heading into a recession, we don't think that the Fed is going to be able to come and ride to the rescue. And so we do think that, that you know, interest rates will stay um, quite a bit higher than market expectations at this moment. Super interesting. And, and that's essentially what the Fed came out and said yesterday, isn't it? They, they don't want to prematurely declare victory like uh, the Fed did back in the 1970s, I think, uh, only to see inflation come roaring back, right? Exactly. It's great when Jerome Powell kind of does the I told you so's for us, right? <laughs> we, we published this a, a few weeks ago. This is what we've been saying for quite some time is, you know, market expectations too optimistic. What we saw yesterday, both in terms of the, the, the 50 basis point rate hike, um, what we saw in the, the statement, um, the press conference afterwards, and especially in the, the statement of economic projections, if you look at the dot plot, 
the, the Fed governors themselves, you know, envisioned the interest rates and, and you know, that the, um, that the upper bound of the target is really going to be at the end of next year, still above 5%. So that implies higher from here and that same higher for longer message that we've been touting um, over here at BlackRock and iShares. Christy, your report goes into the different ways that investors can capitalize on a regime with higher inflation and higher rates. And you talk about shifting away from high growth equities. Does this mean that we're entering into a new value regime or is this, or is it something more nuanced than that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that that's a fairly straightforward takeaway from this. I think that there are a few different reasons why we prefer value at this stage. But yeah, it, it is fair to say that we do. So, you know, our one of our themes in the, the investment guide that we put out is pricing the damage. I, I would say that another way to think about that is really just that stocks are still expensive, or at least mostly and kind of looking at the headline level, the S&P 500, for example. So, you know, what we've seen over the course of this last year is that we've seen valuations, and specifically, I'm just talking to kind of simplistically, you know, PE ratios. We've seen those come back to about 10-year averages, but we don't think that average is kind of the right valuation given the macro backdrop and then sort of where we think we're headed in 2023. If we're going to head into a recession, you know, stocks being priced at their long-term average doesn't look that attractive. But where we do see a lot more opportunity, those kind of pockets, um, you know, we, we have a, a fairly strong preference for value over growth. Part of that is really just the sorts of exposure that you're getting in those kind of factor or style tilts. So value um, is, is much more um, correlated to kind of the, the, the real economy, whereas growth is really highly geared to the pers- to personal income. And so if we, you know, we start to think about that recession and how that's going to ch- take shape in 2023, where we're starting to see a little bit of cracks is really in the consumer balance sheet. Um, so I know we talked a lot about, and, and you know, it's been covered pretty well, that the consumer was really short up and in a great position going into kind of the beginning of last year. There was a lot of dry powder from the consumer um, in terms of a really high savings rate. You know, we all remember being locked up during COVID. There just wasn't that much that you could spend money on. And a lot of those stimulus checks really pushed investor, you know, American savings rates really very high relative to history. But what we've seen is a lot of that's been drawn down. And we're also seeing a pretty rapid uptick in terms of, um, you know, credit card debt. So we are starting to see that that there is sort of cracks in the consumer. We think the growth part of the market, um, in particular tech, um, but but yeah, growth equities in general, are much more highly geared, geared to that consumer spending. So even though, you know, value may be a little bit out of sync with how investors usually think about different stages of the business cycle, um, you know, I think a, a theme underlining this whole report is, you know, the, the playbook that worked in the past might not work in the future. So we like value because it tends to outperform in periods of, of positive real interest rates, um, which we see and we expect to continue, um, and in periods of higher inflation. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I think that value gets a, a bit of a bad rap. We haven't seen those conditions for the last 15 years. So it, it kind of makes sense why, why investors are a little bit hesitant on the value side. But we do think, you know, this is a new investing regime that kind of the great moderation period of lower for longer interest rates, um, of inflation, of really stable, steady growth meant that, um, that that a different part of the market could outperform. We don't think we're in that world anymore. So yeah, we, we do really prefer, you know, expressions via value. We see opportunity too, just in terms of valuations um, within small caps. So for the types of investors who are willing to step out a little bit in risk, 
um, we see those as being fairly fairly well valued. Um, also, with the benefit of, of being fairly fairly closely tied to domestic revenues and also the service sector, which you know, as we've seen from inflation, has continued to be very strong. So, Christy, the last time we saw value outperform growth significantly was, of course, after the dot com bubble burst in the early 2000s. And then we had a period of a few years, I think, where uh, value outperformed pretty consistently, I think from 2002 to 2007, something like that. Is that a blueprint to follow this time around or are things a little bit different than that period? I'll, I'll give you a um, somewhat unsatisfying, very strategist answer that, that I think we're really hesitant about making longer term calls right now. So I would say that our value play for the moment is, is much more falls into the tactical camp, but an important kind of overarching theme of the paper that we just wrote in the regime that we think we're in is that, you know, we expect for the investing environment to change a lot more rapidly. Um, so not that we're, you know, advocating for short termism and in investments, but in terms of those looking for opportunities, um, it might pay to be really tactical. So on that front, where we're, you know, we, we really are having a lot of conversations with investors who maybe don't naturally gravitate towards ETFs, but I, I think that ETFs are really the tool for the times. Um, so, so lots of kind of newer investors in the space, some institutional investors who haven't thought about them before as just being a way to adjust a portfolio rapidly um, based upon some of these changing macro environments that we think are going to continue to change in 2023. So again, kind of an unsatisfactory answer. I think value is a little bit more of a tactical play um, and, and kind of, you know, encompasses at least the first half of 2023, but then we're going to revisit before we're having this conversation again, you know, maybe hopefully you invite me back. We're having a conversation in June. We may be a little bit more bullish or a little bit more constructive on, on other equities or see other pockets of opportunity at that point. Christy, you mentioned that BlackRock is avoiding like long-term calls and the markets are moving really quickly. What are the factors that are kind of like keeping things so fast paced? Yeah, I think there's there's a huge amount of economic uncertainty. I, I think that's that's almost the consensus, right? So I think that we're starting to see a little bit more of a clear path for global central banks and what interest rates are going to do. What we haven't seen yet, though, and this is kind of ties back to that that theme within our implementation guide of pricing the damage is that we don't think that most asset classes are actually reflecting that reality. So I think for us, a lot of the, the constant kind of monitoring that I'm talking about and the, the changing environment and opportunities within, um, within investing is really just about seeing valuations and seeing prices reflect a more realistic economic outlook. Um, so, so yes, I think that you know, most people are, are sort of forecasting a, um, a recession at this point. I just still don't see that that's priced into stocks. Christy, we've, we've talked about stocks, uh, but a lot of your report actually covers fixed income and the bond markets. They've been super interesting this year. For most of this year, we've seen this upward trajectory and rates have gotten increasingly attractive, uh, especially compared to, you know, what we've seen over the last few years, rock bottom interest rates. But we have seen a pretty notable drop in yields on longer maturities over the last few weeks. I, I checked today, the 10-year and the 30-year treasury yields were down something like 80, 90 basis points from recent highs. So now we have longer duration bonds with lower yields than their shorter duration counterparts, yet they still have higher interest rate risk. Does that make them less attractive? And 
where do you see opportunities in terms of fixed income in general? Yeah, and I, I'm so like that was so glad that we got here. Um, you know, it, I don't think I've had a conversation with hardly any investors going into next year where it took me this long to get to fixed income. That's the part where we're actually really bullish. So I'm glad that you brought us around so I don't kind of sound quite so pessimistic here. To start exactly with your question, and then I'll kind of work backwards too into some of the other areas of opportunity. It, exactly that. You know, we are, you know, at, at the highest asset allocation level, we're, we're sort of underweight duration. Um, so we don't see a ton of opportunity right now in the back of the yield curve. Um, exactly to the points that you mentioned with yield, the yield curve being as inverted as it is, um, and there being really no um, term premium priced into longer dated bonds, we don't we don't like those right now. So you know we are really excited about the opportunity set within fixed income, but where we see the best opportunity is really um, in the, the least amount of risk for the most part. So we like short dated. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of targeting around the one to five year part of the curve. Um, and then in particular, we also like investment grade credit um, over high yield. That's, that's based both upon sort of valuations um, in terms of where spreads are in, in investment grade versus where spreads are in high yield and also relative to their history. Um, that, that investment grade credit really seems like the sweet spot for us. And also just in terms of sort of that up in quality idea as we head into to a recession or just to economic slowdown in general. Um, so, so yeah, we see lots of opportunity within the fixed income market. You know, we've got kind of a, a slogan, if you will, because finance sort of turns on acronyms. We've, we've been saying, at least internally, that the, the regime in the world of TINA, so there is no alternative, uh, TINA's out. Uh, we're replacing TINA with BARB. Um, so bonds are back. Um, and, and I think that that's really, you know, where we're most constructive in, in a lot of the conversations that we're having with investors they're really just seeing a new opportunity. They're seeing bonds in a new light. Um, and especially within fixed income ETFs, um, they're seeing a real opportunity to get a yield you haven't been able to pick up for many years. And so we really like this idea of letting bonds do a lot of the heavy lifting um, in a portfolio, especially over the next year when, when equity markets and, and other asset classes may be quite a bit more uncertain. So does that mean the 60-40 portfolio isn't dead I've seen mixed reports on its demise, and it seems like it's all up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> I've also read a lot of obituaries for the 60-40 portfolio myself. <laughs> um, I, I don't think we're ready to throw the whole thing out right now, but I, I do think that that in, in the world as we see it, again, kind of, kind of shrinking those investment horizons and talking about the next six and 12 months in particular, um, I think we're in a really unique space. So this is maybe not the best medium for a graph, but I, there is a, a really compelling graph um, in our year ahead guide that, that simply, you know, what it does and what it looks at um, that I, I think is compelling. So I'm going to try to explain it as best I can in words here. But, you know, what we did is started with this idea that maybe you wanted to target a six and a half percent yield. So that's a, a really fairly common um, investment objective for many investors, especially as they're thinking about long term and retirement. If you go back to, you know, we sort of isolated these different periods that we think look sort of similar to right now in terms of the macro, um, you know, kind of a period that was just about to head into some slowing growth um, and potentially a recession. But if you go back to 1999, that traditional 60-40 portfolio, it, it got you a six and a half percent yield. So, you know, check the box, job done. If you went to 2015, you know, in order to get a six and a half percent yield, you had to be in 80 percent equities. So really that left room for just 20% uh, fixed income in a portfolio. So really, really having to reach for risk 
um, and, and really load up on that risk to be able to get anything like that, that sort of target return. Where what we saw in 2022 and what we think can continue in 2023, right now you only have to hold about 35% equity. So you can let 65% of your portfolio sit in fixed income. You can still earn that 6.5% yield. And so for right now, that looks pretty attractive to us. So, you know, not completely throwing away one asset class or another. We, we do still like a balanced approach, but maybe just thinking about overweighting fixed income a little bit just based upon your risk and return objectives. That sounds very reasonable. The investor guide also mentions at the very end that investors might want to take a more modular approach to emerging markets because of China. I was just wondering, what would that look like? Yeah, that, that sounds sort of, um, you know, mystical and coded in terms of modular approaches. Um, <laughs> well, really what we mean is, you know, I, I think that one of the biggest areas of traction, and this comes up again and again whenever China is in the headlines, whether it's good or it's bad, is separating or carving out the China exposure from the rest of the emerging market index or complex. So we have a, a fund, EMXC, that tracks EMX China. And again, this, this idea and this fund gets really, really popular, good or bad, one way or the other. But for, for investors who want to think about those as almost two distinct concepts. Um, so, you know, the rest of emerging markets may be headed in one direction, especially given the sort of idiosyncratic nature of a lot of the COVID lockdowns and then reopening and um, the, the sort of divergent path of interest rates in China. It makes a lot of sense that investors don't necessarily just want to bundle all those things together. They want to be a lot more targeted and a lot more, um, you know, strategic about when they're investing in each one of those and how they size them relative to each other. So a really interesting trend that we've seen just in terms of ETF flows, um, lots of flows going into that EMX China idea. And then interestingly, the way that we've seen investors want to position around China right now, um, it's, it's almost kind of the, the second derivative. So they want exposure to China upside, which they're getting a lot in ETF options. So we haven't as much seen investors want to put money to work there and, and actually allocate, but we've seen a, a huge uptick in terms of the options usage around China. So might want to own the rest of the complex and then own optionality on the China part. Absolutely. Christy, we will have to end it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been really interesting conversation. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been fun. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.